Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Annie Duke, who is the superstar poker pro who wrote the book Thinking in Bets and takes the analogy of poker and applies it to life so you can make better decisions with all the shit that you do. That's it. It's all about making better decisions because as she sort of says, you know, there's a few things that come into it. There's luck and there's skill. And there's also a lot of uh, information about the decision that we don't have. So we're trying to make the best decision possible without all the information. So this book is all about making the best decision possible. Yep. Better known as bets. Making good bets. Mate, the future is uncertain. So everything you do now, every decision you make, it is a bet in a way. And you need to optimize that to to, get where you want to go. That's pretty much the main thing, I reckon, is you can't ever be 100% sure or 0% sure. You're always somewhere in between. So you've got to factor that into your decision making. Mate, so yeah, love the interview with Duke. She talks a little bit about her actual poker career. I loved listening to her story with Eric Seidel. Yeah. And yeah, she makes an appearance. But yeah, is it... Duke, Duke de Montton. Duke it up. Duke, Duke, the Duke Highway. The relationship between your decision quality and how things turn out, your outcome quality, is really, really super loosely linked when we're thinking about life's decisions. And it's because there's a lot of uncertainty, right? So there's hidden information. So there's things that are hidden from view. I mean, in poker, obviously, the cards are face down. So that sort of prevents you from making a theoretically perfect decision if you had perfect information. Um, But then there's also just a lot of luck in in the outcome, right? So um, even if there's no hidden information, so say I'm flipping a coin, and I know that it will flip heads 50% of the time and tails 50% of the time in the long run, that doesn't mean I know for the next flip. So this causes a really big problem with our decision-making because, uh, first of all, we, we think that things are much more certain than they are. We don't, we don't really under like, we don't operate as if these things are only loosely linked, how we make decisions and the quality of the outcome. And then when we're trying to learn from the way that things turn out, like experience is supposed to be our teacher, it's really hard to figure out why something happened because it could be like, it could be skill. Right. So, I mean, I guess, uh, the example what I get I would give is if all I know that you got is that you got in a car accident, mm. it's very hard for me to tell why. Like, did somebody hit mm. you when you were following the rules of the road? Um, was it your fault in some way? Was it a combination of the two? It could have been some combination of like luck. You know, there was just bad luck, or maybe but maybe you also did something wrong. So, like, you hit an ice patch, so that would be luck. But then you steered away from the skid instead of toward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that would, right. So we don't, and, and it's just hard to see because all I know is that you got in an accident. And so I think that that's actually really the main thing that mucks our decision making up. Yeah, nice. So you said there's obviously there's luck comes into it, skill comes into it, there's incomplete information, uh, there's always risk. Uh, there's so many things that we need to try and take into account when making decisions. And as you said, yeah. then, then we, uh, we don't separate the outcome from the decision and that we, uh, you call it resulting no. and that we use yeah. the outcome to determine whether it was a good decision or not rather than just looking at the decision in isolation. Right. And, and like we, we, this is the thing that we do all the time, right? So, um, and it, it's like a variety of different ways. So, uh, 
leaders do it a lot to their employees. Like an employee closes a sale and they're like, you're a genius. What a great leader you are. Yeah. Uh, and it, if a, an employee doesn't close a sale, it's like, what did you do wrong? <laughs> um, and obviously it, that's, you know, you could have, you know, I, I was saying this today to somebody else that like you could close a sale and not have done anything particularly right. It could just be that the person was going to buy whatever you had to sell no matter what. Like you could have sent like a golden retriever in and they would have been able to sell it too, right? Mm-hmm. Or you could not close a sale and it could be because of things that are completely out of your control, right? It could be uh, the wrong time in the fiscal year or you could just have a product that the best salesman in the world wouldn't be able to sell and it's it's hard to tell. I mean, I think one of the most telling uh things that I've done in the work that I do that really demonstrates this is I'll I'll go into groups and I'll say to them, hey, before we come and work together, I would like you to have everybody in the group write down the best decision that they made in the last year and the worst decision they made in the last year. So I'm asking them to tell me something about a a decision quality, right? And they all come in and I I have yet to somebody do so have somebody do something different. They all tell me the best thing that happened to them, like the uh-huh. best outcome they had <laughs> yeah. in the last year and the worst outcome they have in, in the last year. The weird thing is nobody's ever comes in and says, like, I made this great decision and it turned out disaster. <laughs> yeah. I, I made this terrible decision and man, did it turn out Lucky. well. Yeah. N- nobody ever does that because we link it together so tightly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Whenever, whenever it, it, there's a good outcome, we, we, say it's skill and when it's bad we we say oh it's all just all bad luck <laughs> right exactly and the thing is that here here's the problem is that um if we think about like how do we improve the quality of our decisions well we learn from our experiences but if we're not sorting those things off kind of into the right buckets right into the oh this has to do with some something that i did in terms of my own decisions that i could then repeat um you know versus like getting it into the bucket of that was totally out of my control then we're going to we're really going to learn pretty bad lessons from the way that things turn out. So like, you know, again, a very simple example, if, if uh, I flip a coin and, and, you know, you call it heads and I'm like, Oh, what are, I'm going to bet on you on coin flipping from now on. That's, probably a, pretty, <laughs> yeah. that's a pretty bad decision. But I am. And, and like, if I'm I pretty get good you, at it, pretty yeah, good coin so flipping. There's, there's places where we can get like, a lot of consensus on what the quality of the decision is where I can get you to really see how silly it is to work backwards. Like you, you know, you, you drive while you're drunk and you get home safely. You know, I hope you're not saying like, let me do that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like then you can see through it, to it really clearly, but for our own lives, we don't see it very well. Like, you know, my son, uh, all during high school, he'd come home and he'd, you know, get a bad grade on a test. And it was always like, you know, there were things on the test that the teacher didn't, you know, give us, and it was just an extra hard test and, you know, nothing, no mention mm. whatsoever. Perhaps he didn't study. Didn't do enough, um, yeah. <laughs> it was always things having to do with the teacher or things having to do with the test itself. And then when he'd uh, do really well on a test, it was always his brilliant studying and how hard he worked. Yeah. And I think any parent will recognize that pattern. I think we can all sort of recognize that in ourselves. So, um, and the problem is that then you're not learning. Yeah. So then you're making poor decisions. Nice. So there's a, a hell of a lot of reasons why we're not so good at making decisions. And and you said that having bets is a good way to, you know, account for some of those things. You know, admit to ourselves that we're not 100% sure, that we're not completely certain. There's things that we don't know about. So what's the, the idea about, uh, you know, bringing bets into all the decisions that we make? Sure. So, okay, so if we think about it, whenever we make a decision, there's a set of possible outcomes that could happen. Some good, some bad 
some mediocre, but there's a, there's a lot of different ways it could go. So if I'm, if I go out and I'm, I'm, I'm driving through an intersection, you know, I could get through safely. I could get a ticket. I could get into an accident. I could get into a near accident. Um, you know, variety of things could, could happen, but we act like, you know, once we know the outcome that we know exactly what happened. Right. So, so we don't really understand the, uh, very well, the uncertainty in the way that things turn out that, you know, just because you make great decisions doesn't mean that you have great results, at least not on one try. You know, just because you make bad decisions doesn't mean you have bad results. Likewise, so we don't we don't really understand the uncertainty there. But the other thing that we really aren't very good at is understanding the uncertainty in our own beliefs. Mm-hmm. If I give you enough time, I can get there. So if I say to you, can you think of something that you believed for certain when you were 15 that mm-hmm. you now believe was just, you know, hooey? You know, and you're like, sure, yes, everything I believed when I was 15 yeah. was very, right. <laughs> but at the time, you, right, it's, yeah. So, so, well, now that I want to hear more about it. <laughs> uh, we'll but, stay um, away from yeah, conspiracy so, theories today. It's for yeah. another day. <laughs> so, so that's, so like, so if I give you a lot of time, like if I give you a lot of years in between, you'll like recognize, oh yeah, I have some beliefs that I thought that were really certain you know, maybe I was actually a little bit wrong about them. And in the history of humans, we can see this. Like we used to think that the sun revolves around the earth, mm-hmm. for example. So there's a lot of uncertainty in our beliefs. And generally, our beliefs shouldn't actually sit like in the right or wrong category. They should sit in between in the in progress mm-hmm. category. Nice. And you're sort of trying to move the ball toward, you know, more uncertainty, but you can't really get there. So what thinking in bets does is it basically puts a magnifying glass on the uncertainty. Yes. So... Right. So you declare something, you know, that's for sure. Like, um, well, here's one that's going on in America right now. People are talking about whether the Democrats or Republicans are going to take Congress in the fall. Right. And I've heard a lot of people declare with 100 percent certainty, like the Democrats are going to win the Senate. Um, So that's obviously acting as if it's 100 percent, like what's Mm going to happen into the future is 100 percent. So if I were to say to them, well, do you want to bet? Mm. And you can think about this for yourself. Like if I said that to you, if you declared that and I said, do you want to bet? Mm. All of a sudden you're like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe not. 100%. Let me think about this for a second. Yeah. Let me let me start doing a little bit of research. Let me. So what it does is it gets you to understand that, wait a minute, my beliefs are in progress. They're actually not 100 yeah. percent. And. The, any prediction that I make of the future, there's going to be uh, things that, you know, there's going to be information that I don't have. There's going to be luck. And that's what that sort of want to bet construct does. And once you bring, you, you sort of let the uncertainty bubble up to the surface, you're naturally going to be a better decision maker because you're going to be thinking more accurately about the world and your state of beliefs about it, which obviously will make you make better decisions. Yeah, phenomenal. I really love that, Annie. So, our future's obviously got this, you know, big uncertain element and we want to probably maximize the upside of what our future is. And you've been talking about this this certainty versus uncertainty. Do you think we're better off actually inviting more uncertainty into our lives to potentially maximize the upside but at, maybe at the cost of some downside as well? Well, first of all, I think it depends on what your values are. It depends on, uh, you know, what your own risk tolerance is. So, like, I can't definitively say for somebody, hey, you should be taking on a lot more risk. Like, because I, for example, I don't understand what your situation is, right? So, 
Um, there, for example, there are different things. Like I could tell you sort of in a general sense, not for a specific individual, but generally the amount of risk that somebody who's 25 would be willing to take would be different than the amount of risk that somebody who's 70 might take. And, and that just has to do with like the amount of time that you can sort of recover from a disaster, for example, or, 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 or from the downside, right? Like, yeah. so, um, you know, if you're 25 and, and, you know, you have some, re- you know, something that really doesn't go your way, you've got a lot of time to recover from it, you know, yeah. but if you're 70, maybe not so much. So there are all sorts of things that would determine that for you. Um, but in general, like as a general rule, what I would say is that people um, will very, very often, and it kind of, it depends on sort of what their state of being is, either take on way too much risk, and that would be in a case where essentially they feel like um, they're losing already and they're trying to get to where they're winning. Um, or they become really risk intolerant, and that's where they they're just sort of protecting themselves against losing. So, what what most people are doing in their lives is actually the second thing. So they're generally just trying to reduce the number of losses that they have, yeah. and by reducing the reducing the chances that they lose and the, how much they lose, they're actually auto, just by definition they're also reducing the amount that they can win. Yeah, because somewhere in the book, I think you talk about how we losing hurts twice as much as as winning so this probably shapes a lot of our decisions or makes makes us make bad decisions yeah so i can i can get you into i can specifically get you into a state where you'll make bad decisions in the other way um so uh you know as an example if if i have you playing poker and uh, a cat's gonna come in Hi, <laughs> cat. We um, had a dog in our last interview <laughs> on our end, well, yes, so that's okay. On your cat who may come in. But, um, so, okay, so if I if I have you sitting at a poker table and I get you to where you're losing, here comes the cat. <laughs> okay, um, and I get you to where you're losing. You you might actually make some uh, very risky decisions in order to get out of that state, right? Yeah. Mm. But for the most part, the way that you're going to be making decisions is actually going to be trying to avoid ever getting into the losing state um, in the yeah. first place. So I can I can give you an example, like from sales. Um, if you're playing that kind of strategy, then what's going to happen is that you're going to try to close lots and lots and lots of sales, but you're going to do it early and probably too low in order to avoid ever coming close to breaking a deal because breaking a deal will feel like losing to you. So you'll, you'll just take a lot of really small, you'll take a lot of really small wins in order to not have the rejection. Right. Like, I mean, I can give you examples from like dating from like, you can, you can sort of find this behavior everywhere, but you know, it's like when you're, when what you're doing is just trying to minimize the feeling of regret you're going to have or the emotion that you have around losing um, then what happens is that you stop actually winning. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, so someone will. So if they're you know trying to get a, a new partner or something, they'd probably stop going out to out of the fear of rejection when the upside is actually you know potentially finding someone a partner. Right. How to yeah, go? Exactly. <laughs> right. So so the extreme case of that would be you just stop asking people out. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you're so, you're so afraid of getting a no that you don't even try. Um, the other thing, you know, that might happen is that you might uh, only ask people out who you sort of consider like sure yeses. Mm. So that's obviously really narrowing your sphere of the people that you could date. 
Um, but you're, lo- you know, you're losing the upside there, right? Because you all you, you just don't want to hear a no because maybe, you know, and it, it, this very often happens when you've gotten some no's in a row, you know, and you're sort of very sensitive to that feeling. But a lot of people sort of live their life with that strategy, right? Like they're not taking those kinds of chances for fear of for fear of things work not working out. Um, it's some of the reason why uh, people might be miserable in a job and still not change their job because they're they're afraid that if they quit and they try to go look for another job, like what? But what if? Like what if I don't find one? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not thinking about sort of what's happening with them in the situation that they're in right then. Fantastic. I but now, that... da- dating advice from Andy Duke. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's, maybe that's the next book. <laughs> yes. Um, I was I was thinking uh, as we were talking about about betting. Uh, maybe I don't know what the the culture is like in the US. I feel like it's a little bit more strict. But in in Australia, we've got uh, casinos in every city. We literally have public holidays for horse races where everyone goes to in the morning to place their bets uh, once a year. So maybe it's uh, easier for Aussies to to think in in bets, and it's sort of like allowing this uncertainty you know what you were talking about how we've got our beliefs and then everything we see around us this confirmation bias strengthens our beliefs until someone comes along and says do you want to bet on that are you willing to bet on that and that's maybe the the circuit breaker potentially from thinking mm-hmm. seeing all everything one way and thinking hang on maybe i need to question my myself here uh, how can we sort of get more of the people around us to you know break that circuit of just always thinking of one belief yeah so uh I think that uh, there's there's kind of two ways to do it. And what I would say is it depends on whether the people are kind of in on the joke with you or not. Mm. So uh, the first thing I would highly recommend for anybody is go find some people who you think would be like like minded, um, gather them around you and, and create a group where you have an agreement that you're going to challenge each other mm. um, so that. What what happens is that when you know uh, that you're going to be challenged, there, there's a few, and and the challenge would be around um, accuracy, right? So you're committing to and you know trying to build an accurate view of the world as opposed to a view that's just like I know I'm right, we're great, we're awesome. Let's all talk about how great we are and however we how everything we think is completely true. Um, instead, it would be you know. I'm, you know, I'm going to challenge this belief that you might have, like, I have a different opinion, or what do you think about this? Or here's why maybe you were biased in the way that you were interpreting that, or let me give you this alternative version. I mean, I guess we can go back to the dating thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were in an agreement with somebody where I had made this agreement to accuracy, to holding them accountable, and them holding me accountable to the way that I might be thinking, and being willing to hear when they they disagreed with me or hear alternative viewpoints, then let's say that I'm having a conversation with, um, say, a girlfriend of mine, and she's complaining to me about how, like, oh, man, the last 10 guys I dated were all jerks. Mm. Like, they were all such jerks, and they all treated me so horribly. Now, notice this is all, like, nothing to do with with her, right? Like, and and then I would be allowed to say, because we've agreed to it, Mm -hmm. I'd be allowed to say, like, basically, well, what do you think your part in that was? Do you really think it's just all 10 of them were jerks. Mm. And if she, and if they said yes, I mean, hopefully I would challenge it, then I would say, well, do you do you think maybe the responsibilities that you're choosing people like that? So why don't you think about like what are the choices that you're making, but maybe you should also think about like what your part in that relationship is that, you know, so I could ask all those kinds of questions that otherwise somebody might get really offended by. Yeah. Well, that's right? quite they're really looking quite for common. sympathy there. Well, yeah. especially that that um, example of girls thinking all guys are jerks. You know, I hear that quite a bit from girls, and then they and then they just won't go out. And you mad, and they confirm it. Yeah, then they, <laughs> <laughs> no, they are change right, their so mind. Now you can just say this is your confirmation bias. Yeah. So that that's like 
<laughs> so that that would be like if we had agreed to it. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that even if even if you don't have an agreement right so we haven't agreed that we're going to challenge each other in this way you you can still get there you just have to do it a little bit more subtly Mm -hmm. so i'm having a discussion you're telling me about how you know everybody you date is a jerk and instead of me saying well what do you think your partner that is or you know don't do you think that maybe you're contributing in the relationship or you're you know maybe you're picking people like that like what do you think is going on instead of making those kinds of challenges because we don't have that agreement instead what i can do is just uh ask you how you're going to change it going forward. So I can just, I'll be a sympathetic ear and I'll say, wow, that's really awful. It must be really frustrating. Seems like you've had really bad luck in, in the people that you've been dating. Um, so like, what do you think you can do like in the future to maybe like find better people? So in this case, like I haven't challenged your worldview. I haven't said, yo, you're really biased in the way that you're thinking about this. But Mm. in order for you to coherently answer the question about the future, you actually have to go back and think about what the skill portion was in the past, because otherwise your answer would be nothing. It's just it's just bad luck. Right. But people generally won't answer nothing. So then they they sort of circle back around themselves to go find the skill in it. So. And in either way, I'm really just saying, like, do you want to bet? It's just in one place I'm saying mm. it di- more directly. Like, in one place I'm like, do you really want to bet that all those people were jerks, like nothing to do with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the second case, I'm just sort of saying, like, how would you like to bet on the future? Yeah, nice. So, I like those two different it, approaches like for if, yeah. if someone's open to it and I guess depending on how strong the relationship is and, and those sort of things. Right. I, I like that. Another thing that you I like that you talked about was like a decision swear jar. So – Keeping conscious of you know things like oh, I'm 100% or I'm sure or I knew that was going to happen or this always happens or this never happens. So we need to always be keeping a constant check on our on ourselves as well. Yeah, about that, that kind of language and that kind of thinking. Yeah. So the nice thing about a decision swear jar is that you can set it up for yourself, but you can also if you if you have people around you, if you have formed one of these groups, you, you can all agree to what those phrases are so that I can call you out on it. So, so if we're having a discussion and you just say you're wrong, I can be like, yo, decision swear jar. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so what you want to do is sort of think about different categories of the way that your habits of mind might be leading you astray, right? So one might be like use of the words right and wrong, right? Mm. Um, which I just said right, right. See, so there you go. <laughs> uh, so, uh, <laughs> so use of the words right and wrong or, you know, any kind of like black and white thinking, um, you know, hindsight bias where it feels like once something has happened, you should have known. So whenever you say like, oh, I should have known or how could you not see that company coming or how could I not see that coming, that kind of thing. Um, and, and really kind of walk through and, you know, why do things like this always happen to me? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a really good one. That's just assuming like that was all luck, right? Mm-hmm. Why do these things always happen? Why are these always happening to me? So you can kind of go through for yourself, you know, what are those trouble spots that you have and what are the kind of things that go through your mind or come out of your mouth? that really signal that you're falling into that kind of biased way of processing information. Make Really make a list of it for real, like list them out. If you do have a group, share it with them. And then the group will do two things for you. One is it, they can point out when you say them, but two, they can also add to the list. So they can mm-hmm. say, you know, I've also noticed that when you say this, it's not great. And then what this does for you is it just creates an extra opportunity for you to stop and reflect. So if you never make this list out, then you say all of these things without kind of noticing it. Like you don't even, I mean, they're so automatic to the way that we think and talk and speak to each other. You'll hear, you know, once you make the list, you'll notice other people saying things like this all the time um, that you wouldn't have even noticed before. So it gives you that, that, that moment to say, okay, 
here, here's this list of things. I'm going to try to have some vigilance about it. And then when I hear it, it's this moment for you to say, let me reflect on the way that I'm thinking or processing the information. You're not going to catch every single time that you do it. Mm. Um, in fact, probably you won't catch the majority, but you will catch it a lot, you know, a little bit more. And I can tell you from my own experience as a poker player, being able to just catch a few more instances of it than you otherwise would have is really the key to learning. I mean, yeah. this stuff is really hard. We're all kind of a hot mess when it comes to decision making. If you can get yourself in line a little bit more than the next guy, I, I can tell you from my own experience, like it makes all the difference. Yeah. I think I saw one of these instances in poker. I was watching uh, YouTube and I think it was the 2010 National Heads Up Poker Championship where you were heads up against Eric Seidel. And I think you had uh, pocket nines. He had ace two. Anyway, um, anyway, you won the tournament and you beat him. And I think you're very good friends with Eric Seidel. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> but at the very end, you know, most people would say or, you know, think it's some kind of skill. But at the very end, you said, you know, I, I, it followed my plan to get lucky. So, you know, one of the biases usually is to take it as skill. But you swipped, swapped it around and said when you won, uh, you got lucky, which might actually be humility as well, I think. Well, so I don't really consider that humility so much as realism. Eric Seidel has won over $38 million in tournament poker. Yeah. <laughs> so he is he is uncontroversially better than me. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> but you're a gun. I, <laughs> you're a superstar. I was really broke. looking to get lucky against this person who was much better than I was. Like, no, no joke. I really was. That was like the strategy that I was executing. Yeah. So, and that's not to say like, I'm not downgrading my skill at poker. Like I, I think that I'm better than the average Joe at poker. Um, but he's better than the better than the average Joe, right? Yeah. Like yeah. he's better than the person who's better than the average Joe. So in that case, I need to do as well as I can in terms of the skill elements that I do have control over. But I also understand that in a decision-making battle, he has the edge. So I'm going to, the only way for me to overcome that edge, because I can't like learn how to outthink him at poker in those two seconds that I'm playing. Mm. The only way for me to overcome that is to hope that luck goes my way. Now, now the good news is that um, the skill gap was narrow enough that luck, that luck could overcome the skill gap. So we, you can think about matchups where that's not true. Like if one, um, you know, rugby team plays another where it's like, you know, a rugby team of eight year olds, yeah. you know, versus, it, you know, a, an actual professional rug, rugby team, there's no amount of luck that's going to mm. overcome that skill gap, right? Yeah. So at least we were close enough in skill that the luck could play out. So going back to that dating example, if say if you're a six out of 10, <laughs> better off not going out for the nine out of 10, or you just put in a situation where you can somehow make luck play on your side. So oh, see, I might yeah, use that. No, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, that's, that's actually exactly why. Like, why not go for the nine out of 10? Like, it really is the, I mean, the the only problem is if you're only going for for the nines. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Like then you're limiting your universe in a bad way. Where somebody who's who's who you sort of think of as a as a as a six might actually not be a six because they're amazing mm -hmm. and they actually are beautiful and like you totally learn to appreciate like how amazing they are. Right. So, but it so if you're only you know if you only ever ask somebody who you sort of consider to be like out of your league, that's going to be problematic. But you know, trying, what, why not? Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, no, there's no downside really. I'm a crap. There isn't. Like, they say no. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, all right. I've actually got a girlfriend. We've been harping on about this like, dating example. Can I, can I just also say, like, I, I, hope that, I hope that we all recognize that let, let's call a nine not just looks, 
Yes. But maybe like incredible intellect and humor Definitely. and the whole complete <laughs> package of what a woman is. <laughs> or male, or the other way around. Oh, no. yeah. Or the other way around, exactly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> whatever, your, whatever your flavor is. Yeah, fantastic. So as, as we sort of start to wrap up, we always like to ask uh, the people we speak to, you know, what are some of your favorite books or some of the books that were most impactful on, on your uh, your life so far? So, uh, you know, it's, I, I, there are fiction books and nonfiction books that have very big impacts on me. Um, one of the big uh, fiction books that had a big impact on me would have been like Catch-22 um, by Joseph Heller, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, um, actually kind of anything by Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like uh, some like uh, T.S. Eliot, you know, like, I mean, there's just kind of a lot of that stuff in the fiction world where it was really just about like how beautifully people can write. And the kinds of things that they're writing about and sort of looking into the mind of a writer that really have been very inspiring for me in my life. And then on the the nonfiction side, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's in the book that I cite, like, mm. you know, thinking fast and slow and predictably irrational and uh, like uh, super forecasters by Phil Tetlock. And it, you know, it's just like basically it's like there's all this The Power of Habit by Charles yeah. Duhigg. Um, I mean, there's just, there's all these really amazing, you know, that Cass, Cass Sunstein, he has got a bunch of like, <laughs> there's all this stuff in the space of how do we think, how do our minds mm-hmm. work? Um, you know, how, really what's going on inside of our decision-making heads yeah. that I think is so valuable in, in terms of really trying to improve. And then there's also just like some things that I've written just sort of in the, the that I've read rather in the mindfulness space. Like, um, you know, just, just from, you know, Buddhist monks and things like that, that I think are, that I think are really valuable and really important to read. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, as as you said, you mentioned a lot of books that, uh, probably most, some of those have read, you know, thinking fast and slow and predictably rational. And, uh, we spoke to Dan Ariely and we love those sorts of books as well. They're great, but you've definitely added a, a few yeah. more to our list. And then there. There's one really big one I would say also that really had a has had a huge influence on my life, which is um, the Greatest Show on Earth, ah, which okay. is Richard Dawkins. Um, I just think that the beauty of I think that what comes through in that is really understanding like the scientific method and what evidence means and how you interpret evidence and um, how you how you take something like how you how you how you take a theory that's meant to explain a set of facts um, and predict new things that you might find, for example, in order to reinforce that, what it means to think like a scientist and to be rational. Yeah. I, I think it's, a, I think it's an amazing book. I'm a big consumer of stuff um, on evolution just because I think it, that if there's something that can really teach you like precision of thought and how to think like reading in that space is amazing. Definitely. And if, uh, if people want to find a bit out more about you or your cat in the background, <laughs> is that your cat yes. still throwing it out? <laughs> yeah. So Someone came and closed the door that the uh, cats got into, and one of my cats really doesn't like it when the door is yeah. closed. So. That was our issue last week as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So if people want to find out more, where, where can they find all your awesome stuff? Sure. So, so, so you know, I'm going <laughs> to... Oh, it's here, fine. Please. We love we love the cat. A bit, yeah. of, a bit of animal, so, it's good. Um, there's a couple places. Uh, Twitter is definitely a place to find me, at Annie Duke. Um and then also I have a website, AnnieDuke.com, and there you can do a few things. If you want to hire me, you can hire me there. If you just want to contact me and write to me, that would be the place to do it. I do see all my mail. Um, 
I also have a newsletter that I send out every Friday. Um, and it's really taking uh, current events, uh, both you know, in politics and business and science, and looking at them through the framework of thinking in bets and kind of trying to apply these lessons to uh, the things that we, you know, are sort of out in the world in the, you know, atmosphere that week. You can see archives of the newsletter over on my site, AnnieDuke.com. Um, and then you can subscribe and actually have it hit your inbox every Friday if you want. And then you can also find out about me through HowIDecide.org. So that's a nonprofit that I co-founded and we're actually trying to create um, energy around teaching uh, decision-making and rational thinking to kids. Yeah. Um, so it's really trying to take the ideas of how do you become a better decision maker. And, you know, the way that I kind of think about it is uh, we used to teach kids big books of facts that they had to memorize, but everybody can go get a fact now. That's pretty easy to go yeah, find. Yeah, totally. um, and it would be much better if we were teaching kids how to reason about those facts. And so that's really our mission. Um, so hopefully people will go look at howidecide.org as well. It sounds fantastic. Well, thanks so much for that. And uh, we really enjoyed the book, enjoyed chatting, and looking forward to, to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, you guys. Enjoy New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I will. A little hiking. Yeah. We have been working on a document for a while and it's our top 50 books of all time and it's ready. That's it. You can grab our top 50 books where we've ranked our favorite and most impactful books that we've read so far yep. and, you know, a bit of a spiel on each one and you can grab a copy for yourself whilst you're in there and it's a phenomenal document, I reckon. Most of the books we haven't uh, reviewed yet, so I reckon your reading list will be popped up by a few after reading that one. Exactly, man. We won't give away uh, too many spoilers, but there's some absolute juggernauts in that top 50, as you would expect. Yeah. Head to, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50 and you can download that, uh, that report of the top 50 books of all time. 2018 free. version. All free. 